Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Justin the Food Entrepreneur's Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host. That's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O. And welcome to another educational series on Justin the Food Entrepreneur's Podcast. Today, I have with us Michelle Fannin-Steele of Dirigo uh, Food Safety. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Justin. Thanks so much for having me. Anyone who's in the audience who I'm just going to tell on myself a little bit, I've really struggled this morning with trying to get names right this morning and pronunciation names. So like I'm feeling quite accomplished right now on doing this. So thank you, Michelle, for having the patience for me to get through all that. It's been one of those mornings that I can't pronounce anything correctly. It's almost like a speech impediment that I have. So um, which doesn't make do great being on a podcast, I guess. But so Michelle, tell us a little bit about you and your background and, and and what you do for a living and and all of that so you know take the long-winded story and and go into depth and tell us about yourself and and how you got to where you are sure well so i am a veteran veterinarian and there are not that many of us in the world and i have basically created a company out of my captain's job in the us army and i i commissioned in the us army when i was a veterinary student studying public health at the university of georgia actually and from there i went up to new jersey and i served at fort monmouth and it was a food inspection post now what most people don't know is that the department of defense is the largest purchaser of everything on the planet basically including food and it's the us army veterinarians that are actually in charge of making sure all of that food is safe because if you think about it the army veterinarians used to travel with the caisson and the caisson horses and the caisson mules to take care of them but they were also transporting the food so we took care of the food so it's in our history that we've been inspecting food to make sure that it's safe for our uh, soldier sailors airmen and marines and I took my work inspecting food from, you know, catering halls and food trucks that fed Fort Hamilton and Mitchell Fields and Fort Monmouth there in the New York tri-state area. And I took all of that experience inspecting big places and little places, and I brought it into local and sustainable food. Because what happened was when I was trying to feed my own babies. So my babies are, are growing up, they're preteens now, but when I had kids, I was trying to feed them. And my, my oldest kid was allergic to dairy and soy. And there I was living in, in northern New Jersey, kind of the home of industrialized food, trying to find something I could eat so I could feed my baby. And that's how I started getting to know farmers and small food entrepreneurs, you know, the people who ran the local dairies because they still had them. And I recognized that the food safety skills that I learned in the Army uh, and how to write food safety plans and, and do audits and things like that was a set of skills that local sustainable food and agriculture desperately needed. 
And what ended up happening was uh, we decided that we weren't going to raise the kids in Jersey and we were going to come to Maine. And so we uh, packed up and we moved to Maine. And my company basically started when I was at the Maine Ag Trade Show and the largest organic rancher here in Maine came to me and said, hey, I hear you can write a food safety plan because he wanted to he wanted to do a USDA facility on his farm. And I was like, mm, yep. And he said, can I hire you to write it? And I was like, yep. <laughs> and that's really how my business started. And we're in our seventh year of business. And we have helped hundreds of smallholder food production get up and running. We open, we help people open USDA, you know, granted slaughterhouses. We help them open cut and wrap and smoke houses. We help people open uh, bakeries and all sorts of things. And it's really, it's just been amazing. My work has taken me all around the country and to different parts of the world to really help people not only understand the food safety plans that they have to have in order to comply with USDA or FDA or local um, requirements, but how to really develop their businesses so that they can solve customer problems. And that's really what we're in the business of. We're in the business of helping our customers build wealth and community by solving their customer problems. And so let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, I mean, I actually, I want to go back because I, I know we're, this is part of an education series, but I'm actually a little bit blown away and lost for words. So the veterinarians are actually in charge of food safety, but as a U.S. Army veterinarian, do you actually take care of animals? I did take care of animals. I was the um, I was the uh, base veterinarian there at Fort Monmouth, and I was the I was like the general practitioner veterinarian for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. So all those animals, all those dogs, those working dogs, came to me. I took care of Customs and Border Patrol dogs at JFK, and then actually my second duty station was at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. So go Army, beat Navy. I was. Uh, I was in charge of the U.S. military mascot mules, <laughs> and I, um, yeah, and I took I took care of the mules that you see at the Army football games. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's it's just uh, in my mind just and it's things you don't know about. I mean, it's just kind of crazy, right? But food and veterinary, I guess there's similarities, and medicine is handled somewhat similar to the way food is and refrigerated and things like that, but. I mean, you actually had to learn two sets of skills, right? You had to learn the food skills for food safety as well as all the skills it takes to be a veterinarian. I mean, so you well, actually had sure. a dual path, but all yeah, under one, one, one name. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things about veterinarians is many of us are jacks of all trade and we can do a lot of different things. Because if you think about it, somebody who runs your local small animal practice can do surgery, can do vaccinations and can run a multi-million dollar business because most of those are, are, you know, kind of in the in the low million dollar businesses. Um, you know, if you look at your large animal veterinarians, they're, you know, horse vets are like half farrier and half truck mechanic and, you know, putting racehorses out um, out on the field so they can race. And so we're pretty used to doing a lot of different things and wearing a lot of different hats. 
And if you think about it, most of the issues that, that come up in foodborne illness are of animal origin. So they're, you know, they're, we kind of drop our buckets of, of foodborne illness into physical hazards, like the things that can chip your teeth or, 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 or scratch your mouth or, or stuff like that, or choke you. Chemical hazards, which are things that are either added to the food or, or part of the food that can make you sick, like allergens. And then everything else is microbes and viruses and parasites and prions. And almost all of them come from animals. And it's veterinarians that understand animals and animal-borne diseases. And all of these diseases are what we consider zoonotic. And we're the experts in zoonotic diseases. Zoonotic diseases are ones that are passed from animals to people. Because many of our, our microbes of foodborne illness, they also make animals sick. So, Michelle, through all of this, I mean, in veterinary services, which you don't actually take care of animals now with, but you've grasped onto the food safety piece and sort of launched your own entrepreneurial career in food safety. And while this is an educational episode, you yourself are an entrepreneur in the education uh, related to food safety. So, I mean, how did you decide that you didn't want to stay with the animals and that you actually wanted to go towards the food? Was that all based on what was going on in your home and the allergies your children had? Or is it just where life took you? I mean, how did you make that decision where it was like, okay, I don't want to do animals? Well, it was, uh, it was, a, it was a, a couple of things. Um, the first was that when I was in vet school, I actually did most of my training as a laboratory animal veterinarian. And uh, so we're the people that take care of animals in research facilities. And I loved being a lab animal veterinarian. I'm actually a monkey doctor by training. And the thing is, is that if there is a more useless skill set in the United States than monkey doctor, I am not sure what it is. Because in the global recession, most of us lost our jobs. But the thing is, if you think about it, it's the Food and Drug Administration. And I was on the drug side of the house. And I simply brought all of the skills I learned on the drug side of the house, taking care of, of animals in laboratory settings, into the food side of the house. And it was at the very same time that we were undergoing like I, the, the big outbreaks, like the spinach outbreak. And I was in the Army. I had to coordinate like our response in um in my like in 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 my district um where i was captain i helped coordinate the response for pulling all of that spinach off the shelves we had a big pot pie outbreak right around thanksgiving and christmas um and then we had a couple of other big outbreaks while i was in um while i was in the service and i realized when i got out and i couldn't get a job in lab animal medicine in 2009, that I had this skill set from my time in the army and my time doing laboratory animal medicine, where I can walk into a facility and I understand the systems that make those places run. And I know how to help people put, like get those systems up and running and fix them when they're broken. And that's not a skill set everybody has. And then the second part, I found out while I was in vet school, I really can't do surgery because I have an intention tremor in my hand. And so I would go to like throw a suture when I was doing surgery and my hand would like end up in Wisconsin. And it was, I mean, it was, it was not a great experience because my hands shake. 
And I didn't want to do surgery. It's very hard for me to put a catheter in because I tell my hands where to go and they just flat don't go there. And so that's, so I, I, I figured out pretty early on that I would be doing regulatory medicine. That's kind of what we call it and not hands-on animal medicine because, because my handshake. Well, and it's, and it's actually, there's so many connections between it. And I think, I mean, we do volumes of food for hospitals and long-term care homes and co-packaging, and we've had various subsidies, whether it's owning restaurants or building restaurants or designing restaurants or food trucks or whatever that we've had over the years. And at the end of the day, there's always laboratory work that needs to be done and food science and, and testing that needs to be done and shelf life and food codes that need to be followed that all come back to science of what happens yep. when food goes bad, bacterial. Um, so I want to ask you about the locker because it just accidentally played on the computer and we had a, a, a thing there as I clicked on your link and I'm really like the entrepreneurial thing of that is awesome. But before we get into that, can you just sort of talk to the audience about what the different types of foodborne illnesses are because they come in different forms, right? And it's not always just a bacteria and it's not always just, you know, a foreign object. So will you tell us a little bit about that? Because you mentioned sure. some outbreaks that you've experienced in the past and maybe using those outbreaks would probably be a way of telling the story. Great. Sure. So there are the way we classify it, there are really only three things that can go wrong with food. We can have stuff in it that's not supposed to be in it that is like uh, um, something that can break your teeth. And we call those physical hazards. Okay, right now we are in the middle of this, you know, like this past quarter, we had hundreds of thousands of tons of meat recalled for foreign bodies in the meat. And that's like bits of plastic and, and um, metal. And there was a recall for rubber bands in like chicken nuggets or something. It was really strange. And that's not allowed to be in the meat. Okay. We consider that a physical hazard, a foreign body. Okay. So right now we've had this just rash of recalls because of foreign bodies. <sighs> then the, Biggest reason actually food is recalled is because of something called chemical hazard. So a chemical hazard is something that is either intrinsic to the food, a substance that is intrinsic to the food or added to the food uh, that can cause an, a, a problem with somebody who's eating it. And the highest number of recalls that we have are actually because of a chemical hazard. And those are allergens. So we have in America, the big eight allergens, which are dairy and eggs, wheat and soy, crustaceans, shellfish, fin fish, peanuts and tree nuts, okay? And if you don't label your food correctly as to the presence or absence of those allergens, you can get recalled. And so a lot of people don't do that right, <laughs> and so they get recalled. <laughs> so that's chemical allergens. And then... The next, the, the final bucket is what we call microbial hazards. And so these are the bacteria, like Shigatoxin E. coli. That was what was in the spinach outbreak. And we discovered that that spinach had been planted in what we call a dairy dry-off field. So when dairy girls have to get pregnant again, we pull them off their milking. So they, they stop milking so they can cycle again, and we put them in a dry-off lot. 
so that they can cycle again. Well, shigatoxin E. coli is prevalent on dairy farms and um, that dairy farm had closed down and they sold the land, but they put a, a, what we call a raw ready to eat vegetable on there and it was spinach. And we discovered, we didn't know this before then, that the shigatoxin E. coli came in through like the, the um, circulatory system of the spinach and like walked right up on into the spinach. And then people got sick because they ate spinach raw that's how we eat spinach here in America. We eat it both raw and cooked. So that's what a lot of people think about when they think about foodborne illness, things like shigatoxin E. coli or salmonella or listeria. You know, we just came off the last year, the largest listeria outbreak the world has ever seen in luncheon meat in South Africa. And it killed 200 people and sickened closer to 2,000. There's... There, those those sorts of microbes and things like that um, make people super super sick, um, and that's you know I think three to four thousand people die every year from foodborne illness, and the vast majority of those deaths are from listeria and salmonella uh, and anaphylaxis in uh, from eating something they shouldn't. And I mean, so I mean, one of the things that you do, I mean, as a a food safety business, is that you write the plans that sort of make sure that these things don't happen um, per se, but sometimes like when it's coming from the spinach from a farm and it's in the spinach, I mean, that's a little bit harder to catch, which is why we now require inspections of the sources of our products. A lot of the time, at least I know we do as a company because we need to know where it's coming from and we need to test the soil and we need to do all these things. And so do you help with that? I mean, how, if I come to you as a business, how do you help me avoid these three things? I guess. Sure. It- so <laughs> that is a lot of what, almost all of everything that we do. And we start that by asking three very simple questions of our clients. What do you make? How do you make it? And where do you get your supplies from? And as you can imagine, those are like kind of the tip of the iceberg questions uh, that start out the conversation. But we teach people how to do hazards-based planning. So those hazards, the physical hazards, the chemical hazards, and microbial hazards, what we ask is how reasonably likely to occur are they and why? And then we just keep walking down the systems. And so we teach people how to write the systems. We write the systems for them. But then where the where the rubber meets the road is actually the coaching. Because when we write a standard operating procedure or we write a HACCP plan uh, or we do, a, you know, create an inspection procedure, what we're really doing is constraining ourselves to doing things one way, the right way, every single time that we do it. And the human brain really hates that. And with so many foodpreneurs, what happens is, is they intellectually know what they're supposed to be doing, but their brain is saying pounds of product out the door, pounds of product out the door. And so they, they either start to get confused about what they're supposed to be doing, or they can end up taking shortcuts, or they ignore wholly what they are supposed to be doing. And I've I've certainly seen that happen. Because in a lot of people's minds, it's cheaper just to throw the food away if they get caught. 
And we're trying to change that. And that is a cultural conversation. And we are taking a life coaching approach to changing that. So explain that to me a little bit, because I love the what you're doing there. You're taking it out of the actual profitability and the, the microcosm of the business and, and expanding it upon the larger picture. So what do you mean by life coaching? So what... I teach in life coaching, I do what's called causal coaching, which is basically that your thoughts create all of your feelings. And we do all of our actions out of feelings. And it's our actions that create our results. And so if you think about it, so I am, so this month in my, in my coaching group, I am teaching Trace and, and Lottie. And I'm telling people that they have to, and I'm teaching them how, to implement Trace and lotting on their products. So they have to be able to trace forward and backwards and they have to be able to trace things through their facility. And what happens a lot of times is people when they're first starting out don't recognize that they need to write down lot numbers on products as they come in. So say you're, I don't know, using pepper and you don't have any way of saying, okay, this is my lot of pepper. You don't have any way of saying, I got this from an approved supplier. So I write those systems for them and they're not that difficult, but then it's them choosing to execute it because a lot of times people think that they're, and I'm going to borrow a, I'm going to borrow a term from Silicon Valley here, that their minimum viable product is their food just their food, like they grow perfect tomatoes or they make the world's best cupcake or they make the world's best salami and that's their minimum viable product. Well, it isn't because that food has to be wrapped in an envelope of regulatory compliance. There's no food in the United States that isn't, that's sold in commerce that isn't regulated in some way. All right, but then... After that, after that envelope, on the outside of that envelope of regulatory compliance is the, regula- is, the, is the market compliance and market expectations of your customers, okay? And so you, Justin, if you sell to the institutions, they give you specifications and they say, this is what we expect. This is, you know, you can't have any listeria in your food. You, can, you have to source it ethically or whatever, whatever they told you they need in order for you to sell to them. And most foodpreneurs just want to make that perfect food, right? And getting them to choose regulatory compliance and meeting market expectations is a process of coaching them to understand that this is really all a choice, okay? Can you do all of this stuff and not... Do not follow the regulations and and not meet market expectations? Yeah, actually you can. People do. Are you going to grow and prosper and build the wealth and community that you're looking to create? No, you're not. (laughs) And so you have to make a choice. And I coach people on living conscientiously into honoring their choices and commitments, honoring the animals that gave their lives for that product or honoring the workers who picked those tomatoes and made sure that they were safe and came to work and turned them into salsa. Like when we approach our food production from a place of 
this is a choice that I can make and that and that I am creating wealth and community and I am honoring the the work of all of the people around me and the land that we live in, it totally changes how you approach writing a HACCP plan. Because all of a sudden it means something and you want to show up to it and you want to show up to your customers because you're being in service to a larger goal. And I love that because, I mean, it is about the bigger picture. And I think as entrepreneurs in general, like we aren't just making food, right? We're creating jobs. We're, we're helping the economies in our community. And there's no reason that we shouldn't make the suppliers of our food that come to us more accountable for the things that they're doing. So it, which, you know, through doing food safety plans and making sure food is a certain way, we're in a way making sure that our suppliers are being accountable and doing the right things for the land and, and for our consumers. And we're also making sure that our clients eat the right type of food um, or healthy food that's, you know, not going to kill them and things like that. And it's hypersensitive to, to us in my business because we deal with healthcare so much. So it's a lot easier for someone to get sick and die because most likely they're already sick. But I don't think people realize it. And it's amazing because I'll walk into restaurants sometimes or into places. And I mean, they aren't following food code at all. I mean, it's just kind of incredible and it's a little bit scary. And then they put a window there so you can see that they're not following any of the food code, which just blows my mind. But I mean, I think it is so important that people reach out to groups like yours and be willing to spend the money on the consulting to make sure they're within food code because you make someone sick, it's going to kill your business, right? If you want it to be a profitability issue, have a recall, you know, and while you can throw it away and your insurance may cover part of it, great. The recall hurts your reputation in a way that's hard to get back. Exactly. And, you know, what I teach people is that this really is an investment. You know, there are only there there you every entrepreneur has assets in their business and their their assets start with themselves and the best thing that they can invest in is their own brain. Okay? And so life coaching is an investment in the brain of the person who's running the enterprise. And if that mind is managed they can do anything. Like literally they can do anything. And then the next major thing that everybody agrees that you have to invest in is your customers and growing your customer base and understanding your customer base. Well, your food program, your food safety program, how you make the food, what your supply chain, you know, those three questions that I ask are all part of a set of systems that you have that are an asset for your business. I mean, your inventory shows up as an asset on your books. Well, your food safety plan is also an asset. And if you invest in that asset, it will help your business grow. It's not just an expense. Same way if you invest in your employees, your employees are an asset. And if you invest in them, understanding your food and your food programs, I mean, you never hire a butcher who didn't know how to, didn't know how to cut down uh, the, the animal or you never hire somebody to make cheese that didn't know what they were doing. You got to invest in your employees so that they understand the food safety system and the programs and how they're serving the person who's eating their food. You know, in your case, there's somebody who's sitting in a hospital who's recovering from surgery. They need that food to be perfect for them. So the food doesn't make them sicker than they already are. And 
coaching your employees and investing in them to understand the end product of what they're doing is one of the most powerful ways to make sure you have a culture of food safety. And those are great ways not to just look at it as an expense, as, as money coming out your door. I mean, my goal is for people to love paying my bill because I'm the one that helps them sleep at night. Oh, that That's 100% true, actually. So I still remember a conversation we had. And, and for small businesses, it makes sense to have consultants that come in and help them with food safety 100%. And, um, and we actually it became such a priority. We actually have our own department that does it in, in each of our facilities and things like that, because that is a huge investment in our business and why it's not tangible. And I can't stack it on my asset sheet, um, you know, on my balance sheet, but it's, it's so important for the longevity of your business. And, you know, every once in a while, there's stuff that's out of your control. There's someone that didn't handle something properly and there are recalls. It's just, but you don't want them. I still remember to this day when I was living in New York City and the internet's a powerful thing in that someone recorded rats running around a Burger King. And, right. and like, do you want to talk about food safety gone bad? I mean, rat poo and, and mouse poo have so many pathogens in it. And things, I guess you would call them microbial hazards. And that, you know, I mean, the longevity of that and the image that's out there. I mean, think about, okay, that's not something you just destroy. That's not just out there. You've now created an image for everyone that saw that, that video that there's rats, you know, in that restaurant. So, I mean, you know, and exactly. I probably shouldn't drop names, but I just did. So there's that. But it's um but well, I mean I that mean, leaves a lasting impression for everyone that's there and I'm pretty sure Burger King probably isn't doing too well with anyone that's seen that video. No, I'm sure that they're not. And the thing to remember is is that and there was just actually a a, a report from CoBank that was released this week is that when there is a recall or a food safety issue it actually depresses the whole entire sector. And so when one person has a problem, uh, it, it impacts the bottom line of everybody. And we saw this very keenly in the early aughts with the peanut butter recall. So I've, if you remember down there in Georgia, we had um, Peanut Butter Corporation of America and they had salmonella in their peanut butter base and they knew it. And they and there's an email like this is why they're sitting in jail uh, is because there was an email saying, I know it has salmonella but we have to ship it, ship it anyway, or something to that effect. They knew it had salmonella in it and they sent it to, and to be made into, you know, like the commodity peanut butter that you buy on the shelves. And that's why those folks are sitting in jail. But what most people don't know is that the peanut butter sector lost billions of dollars because everybody stopped buying peanut butter and not just the brands that were affected by the recall. The whole sector decreased by 25% and did not come back really until the paleo movement took over and people, people started like going on high protein diets and eating a lot more peanut butter. It didn't, you know, and, and then, you know, Justin's peanut butter and that sort of stuff, they, that came to the fore and, and peanut butter is all of a sudden a hot commodity again. But, but, People lost a lot of money that had that were doing everything right because when the when there is an issue with one 
food, the whole sector goes down. And the Leafy Green Marketing Association knows this very, very keenly. When we had that uh, romaine recalls and the problems with romaine lettuce last year, everybody stopped eating salads, period. Yeah, I know. And uh, it and affects it, everyone. It does. It does. So, so not doing food safety right not only affects your business and increases your risk of a recall, but it affects your whole sector and whether or not you're going to survive your recall. Yeah, it's, um, and I'm going to throw this out there. I'll add in some personal information is that I've heard this term, like, like the last six months, this term has been thrown around everyone I know quite a bit and everyone's, and it's, I'm going to take an outside reference and apply it inside, but it's the, the word adulting has been coming around. And it's an interesting thing to me because in my mind, the, the word is a useless word because whether you're an adult or a child, adulting being whatever, it's to what exactly we're talking about. Every, your responsibility is in knowing, and no matter whether you're a kid or a person, the understanding that your actions don't only affect you but affect the people around you and it's the same in what we're talking about. The actions of these people in these businesses didn't only affect them. They affected everyone around them. And in the peanut scenario, it hurt the peanut farmers. It hurt the peanut business. It hurt all the people that were employees in the peanut business because you're right. Over, I believe it was 30% of the workforce in peanuts got laid off across the board. So all these people were without jobs. Right. And what it did also is... People became afraid to put peanut butter in schools. And now, so now not only peanuts are an allergen, now people are afraid of peanut butter, period. And so it's, it's this crazy thing. And I can't tell you how much in my organization that story comes up anytime someone talks about putting peanut butter in a product for co-packaging. Like everyone in my company, like you'll, we'll sit down at a table and our strategic leadership team sits down and literally seven out of 12 people are still reminded that, are you sure you want to do peanut butter? And they're like, well, allergens part of it. But the other part of it is you remember the salmonella scare and salmonella can get into peanuts. And you remember what happened there? Well, that's not necessarily true. And this is something we always go through. It wasn't that Seminella can get into peanuts. It's the fact that they chose to send it anyway, because they were choosing profitability over responsibility. And they didn't understand the consequences of their actions to the big picture. And it's exactly right. That's why they're in jail because their consequences, you know, and this is the letter of the law, in my opinion, is it's one thing when it affects you, but when you actually break the laws, when it negatively affects other people, and that's the way the law is written, at least in the United States, in a nutshell, and I'm not a lawyer, so I'm sure I'll have offended someone by that statement, but in my opinion, in food, you don't want to go to jail as a, as a white-collar worker in food. Don't do anything that would negatively impact the lives of other people. And that's your employees. That's the people you're serving food to. That's all of those things. So I think that the real thing to do is just be responsible. Spend the money on doing the right thing for the people that you're serving the food to, for your employees, because they need jobs. That's why they're working for you. And like, make sure that your suppliers are being held accountable also, because even though it may look as tough love and I'm not in control of their business, you're actually making sure that they do their business properly because they're actually going to survive longer if they don't mess it up either. And so I think it's so important that as entrepreneurs that we take responsibility for the whole picture, you know, and we talk a lot about 
you know, open door policies and open heart policies and the soft side of the business on the podcast, but we haven't actually got into the hard side, which is what you're talking about, which to me is food safety. You know, food quality is great. Being on time is great, you know, whatever. But I can tell you in my own business, if we, if we thought something was bad or a foreign object might've ended up in food, we recall it no matter how much it costs. And we have to be honest with our clients. We have to be like, man, we messed up. We messed up bad and it slipped and we need to go back and fix this. And yes, we have all the plans in place, but we messed up still. So we need to go back and redo our plans. And if it's something we do internally and things we mess up, sometimes we still need to bring in an outside consultant, even though we have our own internal department, because we need an outside perspective. And it's worth every penny not to have a mess up again. Because when, I mean, we do over, uh, 20 million meals a year uh, for healthcare and long-term care institutions. And when you're doing that variety, 9,000 SKUs a day across the country, it's hard to manage all of those things. But grasshoppers do end up in the food every once in a while. They're green, they're lettuce, people are picking them right from the food. So, you know, you need to put in systems like we do to find foreign objects in the food. And even that sometimes doesn't catch every ladybug or everything that goes in the food. And while they won't kill you, you don't want it in the food, right? And it still has a negative impact on your business. And so it's crazy. And I went off on a tangent there. I'm sorry, but I just want to emphasize the importance of it. Right. And I think, that that also what's important to emphasize is I think the people who aren't showing, I, I call it showing up to your food safety. They're not doing it out of, you know, most of them are not like the peanut corporation folks and even the peanut corporation folks, they were doing it out of fear. You know, I ask people, I have have this way of asking, uh, asking questions that we call strive. So when my clients are are having problems in their facilities and they can't figure it out, I just ask a series of questions and it comes and, and I made an acronym out of it and it's called strive. And the first question is, is, are you physically safe to solve this problem? And, you know, you know what food manufacturing is like. There are times when the answer to that question is no. I know I I had clients who things weren't getting cleaned appropriately because their employees were not physically safe to go do the cleaning. I had a client whose fill line wasn't being operated correctly because uh, his employees were risking third degree burns to operate it correctly. So we fix that, right? But then the next question in, in strive in safety is, are you financially safe? All right. And so many people feel so financially unsafe because they're not, they haven't cleaned up their own thinking about money and their money beliefs and what it, what it really costs them and what it means to do things right versus what it means to do things fast. Because they're afraid if they don't get the products out the door, the pounds of products out the door, the revenue won't be there. But the truth is, is that unless you stand in your truth and you're willing to say, I did that wrong, you run such a risk of financial catastrophe and a recall because the leading reason food businesses go out of business is because of a recall. Yep. And so a lot of this is coming from this huge sense of financial insecurity because people feel like the, you know, margins in food are small and we could have an entire conversation about financial 
financial insecurity and food, foodpreneurs, but a lot of it is coming out of fear. And if we just recognize that fear and recognize that that fear is coming from our thoughts and those thoughts are optional, we could change so many things because I believe that by and large, people are really trying to do the right thing. They just might be going about it in the right, wrong way because they don't really know how to ask the empowering questions, how to go and get the information, where to get the information, or even what information is out there. Because let's face it, between the time I started doing all of this and started learning about food safety uh, when I was in the Army, and now the laws have changed. You know, the laws have really, really changed. And in, 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 in ready-to-eat foods, we have to have five logs of reduction of salmonella by and large. And you have to be able to prove it. Like, that didn't exist 10, 12 years ago. And now it does. And people, one, don't know it. And two, even if they do know it, don't know how to prove it. Yeah, and I think it's so important. And I, actually, it's interesting because the laws have changed so much with the uh, Food Service Modernization Act and things like that. And in my in our own organization, it's it's an interesting conversation because you know, still to this day, there's, you know, we have to do all these things and there's all these extra food safety steps we need to take for the co-packager. And I'm like, well, one, we don't do business for free, so let's put it in the cost. And if someone's not willing to pay for it because they don't want to be fi f responsible for their food going to their customers, that's, that's an easy thing. Guess what? We just filtered out the people we don't want to do business with. And I think people have got to understand that cutting the corners isn't going to lead to more profitability. If I cut that corner because I want this customer so bad and my business kills someone, um, I don't have a business anymore. So my financial insecurity is, is this. There's zero financial any benefit to it. And, you know, it's not right. – it, it really is – go all the way in. And then the second part was, is as we did it, was talking to all the employees and the managers that work for us and, and in my business is that this is a marketing opportunity, a sales opportunity. One, we get to we get to put it in our cost, so let's charge more. Why? Because we're giving you a better product. Why is it a better product? Because we're ensuring it's safe. You know, so that's one. But the second part is, is look what we're doing as a company. And I think every person that's out there even as a restaurant or a cupcake shop or a butcher or whatever, they don't take the opportunity to market the food safety side of their business enough. And giving people, you know, I'll go back to the Tommy Boy movie. It's the freaking guarantee on the box. It's the warranty. Like, here's the warranty in my food. I follow all the food safety steps, the front and center. Here's what we do to make sure people don't get sick. And someone out there is going to do it. I'm just waiting for it because there's some business out there that's really going to really grasp people by giving them that loving feeling and safe feeling of, hey, the food I'm getting is safe. It's safe for my children. It's safe for me. And they're taking all the steps to do it. You know, And while there's no 100% guarantee because things happen, at least you know, acknowledging that you're doing the best to make sure it doesn't happen is, is, is really a huge marketing opportunity. And it surprises me that more people don't do it. You know, I knew it's a huge part of our sales as a company now, and it works. But, you know, if people only care about price, like I'm just like, maybe we're not the best people to work with because we need it to be safe. And we care about the people that work for us and their families. And we also care about the, the people that 
eat our food and their families, and we don't want to be responsible for hurting anyone. You know, so. Right. And we, yeah, we around here, we call that your food safety story. And it's the story of how you're serving your customers by showing up to your food safety and how you're serving your suppliers by doing the same thing and, and, and having high standards for your customers. And that's okay. Asking your customers to meet what you need in terms of food safety. Well, that's a, that's a tide that lifts all boats. So it increases the conversation. It increases the demand for good food practices because the truth is, is if we don't ask for that ourselves, the government's going to come in and ask for us. And they have, they have, (laughs) You know, USDA and FDA are constantly finding new and inventive ways to insert themselves into our businesses because there are businesses who do not take food safety seriously. And it behooves all size businesses to stay a step ahead of that instead of fighting it. And to know that by building a food safety store, you are serving your customers because your customers, they don't want their customers to get sick. Or if you're serving directly to the public, they're, I mean, it's devastating. You know, every, you know, we had a, we had a, my favorite French restaurant here in Portland went out of business um, because they gave everybody, um, they, they gave everybody foodborne illness, a disease called Campylobacter. And they went out of business and we didn't hear from them and they opened back up. And the first thing everybody said was to clean up the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, I and mean, it just stays crazy. with you. No. And I mean, that's, and it, it kills stories and people who have to divert and money's lost. And there's been some big grocery store chains that have found listeria and drains and things like that. And it's changed their business model and cost them hundreds of millions of dollars in, in changing things around. And like, it does have a financial impact. And while the investment doesn't show up as an asset, like we said before, I think it's just so important that people take the time. And so um, just to go back, because you mentioned tracing and lotting. And so will you just explain, and obviously I know what it is, but I think the audience, and I would love for you to explain this, sort of what is the benefit of tracing and lotting your products? And, and why is it so important to have the plan? Sure, of course. So we have both a variety of laws and market expectations around the traceability of your products. And what that means is, is that when you make something that you know to whom it went and when and which lot went there. Okay. And so that's why we do traceability and lotting together. And so lotting, I have so many clients that just dive into confusion about lotting. Well, what's a lot? Well, if you make one, just let's be really simple. If you make one skew, okay, and you always make that skew on Mondays, then your lot most of the time is going to be the date that you made that and you do month, day and year. All right. And you can trace that product all the way through. So say it's a, a loaf of bread, okay? You make, you make your, your, your wheat bread on Mondays, all right? And your loaf of bread has its lot number on it. Now, your lot number is not the same as the best buy date, okay? So don't get those two things confused. And then through your paperwork, and I recommend a paper system before you institute an electronic system, you can say, okay, I sold all of Monday's bread to distributor A and restaurant B and supermarket C. And then if you 
find a problem with that, you can go to distributor A, restaurant B, or supermarket C and say, I need that I need that bread back. There was a problem with it. We didn't cook it appropriately. We had a Band-Aid fall in it, all the things that happened, right? So, so that's what we call forward traceability. Well, let's take that bread example again. All of that bread has ingredients. It has flour. It has yeast. It has sugar. It has salts. It has leavening agents, whatever, you know, bread dough conditioners, all that sort of stuff. When you're making commercial dough, that's the kind of stuff you put in there. Well, you have to be able to say, okay, I know that take the wheat, for for example, that the wheat came from somebody who I know is, is selling me the wheat that I want. So I work with local, you know, I like to work with local bakeries and they, um, they buy specialty wheat and things like that. All right. And so you can trace it back and you know what lot that wheat is. So in case the the mill house has a problem, they can notify you and you can find their product in your factory or in your restaurant. Okay. So that's backwards traceability. And what companies need to do is that for every product that they create, they need to be able to trace all of the ingredients in that product. And we do that by, by doing lot numbers. And so if you, don't, the, if you don't get lot numbers with your incoming raw material, my recommendation is assign lot numbers to it. Just use something that makes sense. Write it on the bill of lading, okay? And then write it on the actual, you know, you're putting, I don't know, your pepper, your flour, or whatever into a container. Write write it on there. And so when you pull out your make sheet, which has like your recipe and all that sort of stuff, you just write the lot numbers on there so that you know what went where. And that's what traceability and lotting does. And the bigger you are, the more traceability and lotting you're going to need. Okay. So we start with traceability and lotting on finished products. And then we go to traceability and lotting on raw products and then we do traceability and lotting on all of our work in process. So in our bread example, you don't make all your bread in one day. You make it one day, you let it rise or proof. And while it's rising or proofing, we call that whip inventory, work in process inventory. Well, that has to be traceable, okay? So you have, so that's your, so that's probably six months worth of work for a lot of businesses. And then if you want to be super compliant, okay, and really make sure you're protecting yourself, you add in trace and lotting on all of your primary packaging. So the bag, the bread goes in and the label that goes on the bread. And this is especially important if you have allergens because that label must be correct. And probably that label, if you are big enough, is part of an allergen preventive control under your preventive controls plan, okay? And you have to be able to track your labeling so that you know the right label goes on the right bread because if it doesn't, that can be really problematic. So that's kind of the gist of traceability and lotting. Well, and I think one of the things that you just covered on, and, and I want to make this point to people, is the, the whip and, and what it means in the larger your business gets. 
you know, we, a lot of people go in and they design their business and they go in and they design it based on workflow, but they don't realize all the extra steps that are needed for food safety. So having a food safety consultant as you design your business, I think is really important. And I know I'm like, oh, what are you saying, Justin? We need to spend extra money. Yes, I'm saying you need to spend extra money. It needs to be part of your budget to figure out because it is important. Because I know just from my standpoint, as we're opening up new locations and designing our newer locations, I have to have food safety as a part of the conversation, a major part. And not only do I have them do it once, but I go to outside people and have them do it because it is so important that I have... I design even extra rooms, and yes, it costs extra money, into the production process so there's enough room for things like WIP, uh, the work in progress or, or process. And, um, you know, so, you know, the whole part of a food safety is not just I have this business, I'm doing this work, let me ask them to come in and do it because I have a problem. No, it needs to be a proactive thing that you do as a business is bring in someone like Michelle from the very beginning and have her be with you the whole time. And it's not a consultancy in that it's just come, she gives you advice and you should take about one or two things that she gives you in the typical consultant sense that we all know from other businesses that businesses do. No, this is a food safety person. If they come in and they're saying to do certain things, you should explore all of those things. And, and not only that, have them been involved as an entrepreneur in the beginning of your business all the way through and have them come in and check up on you and, and make sure you're also voluntarily doing audits on your business and having someone come in and do it. And I think that's important as well because you need to be held accountable and in, in doing it yourself or having someone internally doesn't always hold you accountable. I know we go through audits all the time voluntarily and our food safety people are always being tested on the newest food safety laws. And even with that, we bring in outside people to come in and look at our businesses all the time. So you know, I don't know if, if you agree with that, Michelle, but I, I really feel that as a food safety consultant, it's important that everyone have you involved from the very beginning. Well, as I like to say, I am way cheaper before you pour the concrete. <laughs> I prefer to get in at the drawing stage because what, what and this happens so, so many times, is that somebody has a, a, a pretty successful small business and they're in an incubator kitchen or they're in a food truck or, or they've got a catering company or whatever and they're like, I'm going to go bigger and I need a bigger space. And so what they do is that after the workday is over and they, they sit down with a cup of tea and they start drawing out their ideal workspace. But in their head, because of the way they've previously been regulated, and that's by and large under something we call the food code, which is like your local food regulations for catering companies and restaurants and food trucks and things like that. So your, it's, what, it's what your health inspector, it's like the, the regulations your health inspector inspects on. What they generally do when they've been regulated under the food code is they just create themselves a much bigger kitchen. Okay, And that's not necessarily bad. But when you go to grow and scale your business, you have to get out of the mindset of I'm cooking. Cooking is amazing. It's putting a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's following the recipe, but feeling your way through it so that you can make what it is that you want to make. You can do your specials and all that sort of stuff. When you decide to grow and scale, you have to put on a manufacturing mindset and 
the more you can do the exact same thing in manufacturing every day, every time you do it, the more money you are going to make. Okay. That's not the calculus in a restaurant by and large. I've been in Michelin starred restaurants and watched the meat and I see them taste and they're like, nope, adjust the salt, do this, do this, do this. It's very creative. Manufacturing, you have to take all of that creativity and put it somewhere else. <laughs> and when you work with somebody who knows how to do food safety and you're designing a facility and you start there, the first thing you talk about is where does all the products come in? Where do all the people come in? Where does the air come in? And where does the water come in? And that's exactly what I do when I go to facilities and I walk around and they're like, okay, let's start the audit. I'm like, all right, where does, where does all the food come in? Because how food progresses through your facility has huge impacts on your profitability. How people progress through your facility and how much time they waste walking back and forth has huge impacts on profitability. And if you don't plan how your food, your people, your water, and your air go through your facility correctly, you can't do food safety correctly. It's just not, it's just not possible because you'll end up with a U-shaped food safety line where you have your raw products right next to your cooked products. And that, my friends, recipe for disaster. Yeah, it's um, and I don't think how many people realize that. I mean, because the way you handle your fridge in your home is nowhere near. I mean, people, you should handle your fridge this way. Believe me, I we do in our house. It's almost a little bit. People, the kids, the stepkids, get frustrated with me a little bit because I'm like, no, you cannot put raw meat above, you know, product you're going to eat raw. Like it doesn't go above the vegetables. Please don't put it there. If it leaks, I, I'm like freaking out galore. You know, and probably think I'm a little anal retentive, but it's um, the truth is, is that's how you get sick is exactly what you're talking about. Either ready to eat products near raw products that haven't been cooked yet or raw products with cooked products. I guess that's technically ready to eat, but it's but the importance and all of it in, in, in a nutshell is that. And we're starting to get there as a company ourselves. So, I, but I think it's important is that every single person in your company, even the accountants, even the whatever, or anyone as a business, small, large, medium, that everyone hat should be educated on food safety. The same education that the employees get on the floor, every person in the company should have that so they get an understanding of the risk. They get an understanding of it so they can sell it and market it because I think it's so important when companies do it. But that also everyone have an understanding that it has to be one of the visions and the goals of the company is the food safety aspect. Right. And I think what you say is so important. And so I'm going to just ask you a quick question. Are you familiar with Dr. Edward Deming? Do you know who he is from manufacturing? I do not. Okay. So Dr. Edward Deming uh, wrote a book in the 70s called Out of the Crisis. And it was all about how ma common manufacturers could manufacture better. And his thesis is, was, I suppose, he's passed, his, that it's the line workers, okay, and the people who are actually doing the work that can create quality in a product, all right? Dr. Deming tried to sell U.S. car makers on this idea, and they would have nothing to do with him. So he took his ideas to Japan and brought them to a company called Toyota, which in the 70s nobody had ever heard of. 
And Dr. Deming, working with his counterparts in Japan, revolutionized Japanese car manufacturing, and the rest, as they say, is history. And we are really at a point in American food manufacturing where we can adopt the idea borrowing from Dr. Deming, that you cannot inspect safety and quality into a product. It must be manufactured into the product from the moment of its conception. So you can't test your water, okay, after it's already gone into your fields and say, huh, that might be a little dirtier than I thought. You've got to actually do all of that work beforehand. And that's what scares people that the amount of work that they have to do beforehand and the amount of training that they have to give to everybody beforehand, because it's those people who actually touch your food that can have the biggest effect on food safety. They have an effect on food quality, but we got to look at food safety first. And if they don't know what they're doing or they don't care what they're doing or they haven't been trained to understand why it's important, you can't make that up. And the amount of waste that's associated with producing an unsafe product that you have to go in and then recall is huge. And when I'm putting together a food safety team, I don't just put on the, you know, the people in the QA department. I mean, I go into so many places and they're like, here's the QA department, here's your food safety team. I'm like, no, I need somebody who actually touches the food on the food safety team. I need somebody for marketing. Okay, because we have to have marketing understands why this food safety stuff is so epically important. I need somebody from accounting because I need somebody from accounting to understand where all the money is going. <laughs> That's a food safety team. And it's, it's, it's a team that understands that, that producing safe quality products is the future of the company. It's not an expense of the company. Yeah. Well, and not to mention just from a business standpoint, you want to cross train your employees in different businesses and parts of the business so they can grow anyway. I think it's an important part for human nature in general and constantly educating your employees on food safety is one, giving them purpose, but two, benefiting your business. And so the benefits of food safety and why you said, yes, people don't want to do it. It's a negative, but I, I go back to the disadvantages of your business become the advantages if you choose to face them. And so the disadvantages of your product and the food safety scares it may create, those disadvantages, go do them. Face them head on. It, the, the, the people that are willing to do take the easy road, yes, they may find some success in their life, but the people that actually choose the hard road and face things face on, those are the real entrepreneurs that, that find the success. And that's for, true for me too. When I've taken the easy road on a business, that business may have done well, but it didn't succeed to its full potential. Why? Because I chose not to take the hardest roads. When I've taken the hardest roads possible and, and done the things that I didn't want to do in food safety, man, that was a hard road for, for me and our company. I mean, it was a push in getting everyone that had been doing it for you know 20 years in our business to change the way they were doing things. And you know, it was hard and I felt really bad for a food safety manager because she just took a brunt of it and, and people pissed and their jobs changing and people don't like changes. But if you do it from the very beginning, then they don't know anything else. And if it's part of the employee's training as they onboard, then they don't know anything else. Don't train them as they go along. Make it part of the process as they get there right away and then continue to educate them along the way and use a consultant um, if, you know, a position in your company isn't totally there. And if it is there, you still use a consultant to help make sure you're keeping in check because it's in the United States, we have a check and balance government, right? We have government structure that each 
part of the government has a check and balance on the other part of the government. That's the way the businesses should be run as well. And not only that, there should be outside check and balances coming into your businesses with audits and food safety people, as I've said before. But I think it's so important. And I can't emphasize it enough to anyone that's on here that it's not only about serving a good product. It's not only about profiting, but it's about the safety of the food you're serving to everyone because that truly takes care of the people you're doing it to. So serve safe food, or I guess you could probably say serve yummy safe food would probably be the best way or, or whatever you want to call it. But it is important. And um, Yeah, it's absolutely important. And, you know, nobody would ever think about... If, if you have any, if you have a business of any complexity whatsoever, you wouldn't go into a contract without a lawyer. You wouldn't go into dealings with the IRS without a accountant. Um, and if and 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 there are so many things that we need coaches and consultants for, you know, that nobody questions. But then all of a sudden, you know, you talk about food safety, and people have this idea in their head that it's just an expense, and it's like here's a hoop, jump through it. But no, if you approach this well, you're building resilience into your company. The ability to do food safety well is the ability to tell yourself the truth because you have a set way of doing things. And when you don't do things that way, if you learn to stand in your truth and let people report things that go on without fear of repercussion, your company can withstand anything. And if you take it a step further and say, if people are seeing something go wrong and they don't report it, then they're in trouble. That's an even bigger step in food safety. And it's a consultant or a coach that can come in and help you establish those cultures. And I do this for people all the time. And I'm like, it's okay. I got big shoulders. Blame me for everything that's going on. You know, <laughs> that's totally fine. <laughs> but helping people understand that doing food safety well and catching your own errors creates resilience in your business because you are standing in your truth. And the thing is, is that truth always creates wealth and lies always destroy it. And so when you define what you're going to do and you do it, you are creating wealth in your company. I agree with that 100%. And one of the other things I like that you sort of touched on in from before is that it really needs to be championed within the company as well. Like there, you and people need to take pride in the truth and pride in food safety, and it needs to be championed. and And the leaders of the companies and the managers of the companies really need to to reward it and tell everyone they're doing a good job when they do find an issue because you want the truth. I mean, it should be rewarded. I mean, you don't want someone purposely damaging food, which is the other side of the coin and then being like, Oh, this food's damaged. Give me a reward. So there is obviously a balance there in how you reward it, but you want to make sure that you are making sure that people are truthful and that people are honest. And if someone's not honest with you in other things, they're probably not going to be honest with you in food safety or 
they're not the type of people that are going to take care of your food either. So, I mean, it's all part of the process, right? We've got to be smart as managers and entrepreneurs and protect our businesses and our employees, but at the same time, making sure that we have people coming in from the outside and, and helping us make sure we're doing the best that we can. And that's not an inspector coming in and just inspecting our business. That's someone coming in and being proactive and, and helping us be, like I said, proactive versus reactive. And inspector comes in and says something, we react. But it's so much better to be so much farther down the field and be ahead of the curve in terms of food safety by bringing in consultants and people that are constantly studying it so your business can, can do those things. And Michelle, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm actually looking for, forward to a part two. And actually, we should actually just go ahead and maybe talk about doing a, just a whole three-part series, if that's up to you, because I think we can turn it into a lot of subcategories. And I have a lot of other questions and things I want to go over with you. And I actually, I have a list of 22 things that I was going to talk to you about, and we only got through <laughs> three. So it's... Uh, <laughs> it's uh, I mean, that's how vast food safety is, honestly, and we wouldn't even cover it in three episodes. So it's, um, I would love to, to keep going, but I'm, you know, I'll, we'll be talking soon and doing the second part of the interview, but I'd like to go ahead and schedule a third one with you as well and let the audience know that we'll just turn this into a three-part series if that's okay with you. Oh, that's, that is absolutely okay. I love talking about this. I love getting out in front of foodpreneurs and helping educate them so that they can stand in their truth and to let them know that this stuff doesn't have to be scary and that scary is optional. And I am totally here. I have got their back. I know how to have these conversations. And don't let your fear stop you from picking up the phone and calling me. I, I have answered every question imaginable and your questions aren't stupid. You're doing just the right thing if you're sitting there quaking in your shoes saying oh my god i gotta do something about my food safety that is what we are here for well and it's it all goes back to what we talk about and like the success at least that i can pass on to everyone is our fears are actually our greatest asset because our fear of doing something or the disadvantages that we have when we actually face them and go deal with it like a food safety thing or things that we're afraid of when we go conquer it and work with someone to conquer it, whether it's a coach or a consultant or, you know, a, a person, any of fears in general, but on particular food safety, we get an advantage because one, eventually someone who's our competitor, who's not doing it is going to mess up and fall to the wayside. So, okay, we're still standing in that case by doing the right thing, not by hurting the competitor, just by doing the right thing. And the second part is of that is by doing that, we are learning so much ourselves and giving so much to the people around us and, and our, our customers by making sure we have good, safe products. And it is the right thing to do. And, you know, actually I said it would be two things, but it's actually the third part is going back to we can market it. And marketing it to me is a huge asset. Um, and it's amazing. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast, which I'm so glad we are, is because I think food safety is like sort of this vilified aspect of the food entrepreneur. It's vilified and everyone talks about, oh my gosh, and they make us do so much and they cost so much money. And, you know, uh, gosh, why do I have to go through this? But actually, they are the ch best champions of our business. 
And people don't realize like if there's anyone that cares about the safety of our, our business and the business being long-term, it's the food safety people because they're going in there making sure that everyone around us is safe and without safe food, you can't survive. Like something bad's going to happen to put your business down. And even though something may slip through the cracks, if you have everything in place, people are a lot more understanding than, oh, you know, I knew there was salmonella, but I sent out the peanut butter anyway. You know, that's not a very forgiving thing. Or I knew I might not have a food safety plan, so I just did it anyway. No, you need to have all your ducks in a row because something will go wrong. And you want to make sure when something goes wrong that you have 99% of the, all the bases covered. You know, I don't think there's ever 100%, but you can come pretty close. In my opinion, if you really know your products, you bring in the right people and you train all of your employees properly. So I actually think that you guys are, are some of the biggest champions of the business. So um, thank you. I should say thank you, Michelle, for what you do. Thank you for what you're doing for the industry. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. I'm delighted to be here and I look forward to recording more. I am too. And everyone who's listening in, if you like what we're doing, and I think food safety is a very important topic, please share this episode, pass it along, let people you know about it, tune in. Um, Michelle, will you just quick let everyone know in the audience how if they, they're interested in a food uh, safety consultant and, and interested in your services, that how they can get a hold of you and where they can find you? Sure, absolutely. So if, you're lis- if, if you like podcasts, uh, I have my own podcast, and it's the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute podcast, where we talk about both the coaching and the consulting. So everything I talked about, about trace and lotting, I have a whole podcast episode on that, my friends. We got lots of downloads associated with that because I actually give away a ton of the, um, of the food safety documentation because I don't think that's what should stand in the way between foodpreneurs and success. And then if you'd like to work with me one-on-one, we do a ton of that. You can just give us an email at sfbdi at dirigofoodsafety.com, D-I-R-I-G-O, foodsafety.com. And probably the easiest way to find us is on Facebook. Go to our business page, just type in Dirigo Food Safety on Facebook. I'm there. And I post a lot of things around um, news around food safety and things like that. I work with a lot of farmers. We're having lots of conversations about African swine fever this weekend. Um, big recall news, that sort of thing, um, what the FDA and the USDA is doing. So there are lots of different ways to get a hold of us. And I actually, that's one of the questions I have on my list because it is something that's going on right now. And when this podcast... Um, airs, it'll sort of be a topic of conversation. So I think that uh, it's going to be important. So I, again, thank you, Michelle. And I do encourage everyone to go listen to her podcast and, and get as much food safety knowledge as you can. It is an asset, an intellectual asset to your business. And it's a financial asset in that it'll save you money. And it'll actually, if you let it and market it, like I said, it'll actually also help you make money and drive people towards your business. So everyone who's in the audience, if you like what we're doing on the podcast, again, share it. You can reach me at Justin at the food entrepreneurs on Instagram and Facebook, as well as Justin at the food entrepreneurs.com, which is my email address. If you're interested in being on the show or you want information from me 
on Michelle or how to get a hold of her, you can email me or direct message me as well. And thank you everyone for listening in. And part two will be coming soon. So thank you very much.